Welcome to the Daily Bible Podcast, a show intended to help you get more out of your everyday time in the Word. This is a ministry of Compass Bible Church in North Texas, and if you'd like to join along with our daily Bible reading program, you can do so by going to compassntx.org and clicking on the Daily Bible Reading tab. Thanks for joining in for today's episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Happy Sunday. Yep. It's, uh, it's the Lord's Day. Every day is the Lord's Day in my life, Pastor PJ. Every day is the Lord's Day. Yeah. This is the day the Lord has made. This one and the next one, the day before that, yeah. and the day after, yeah. all of it. This one just happens to be the day. Why do we meet on Sundays? Um, because Sunday fun day. Oh. Yeah. Is that any any relation to fun yins? Is that kind of the thing? Or no. No, no, I don't think yins? so. I don't think those were in existence when... Uh, Every church decided. No, we meet on Sundays because first day of the week, it was the day that marked the resurrection of Christ. It was a Sunday that he walked out of the grave, never to re-enter. And uh, so the church began meeting on Sundays to commemorate that day. And that's why we meet on Sundays still. Is there anything wrong with meeting on a different day of the week? If yes. we decided to do um <laughs> Okay. <laughs> what about what about like on Wednesdays? Uh, or, you know, some churches are doing uh, like Monday church. Yeah. No. They're trying different things. Saturday evening churches. I know some people do that. Right. 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 Yeah. No, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there, there's no scriptural mandate that says church has to be on a Sunday. It's a, it's tradition. That is why we still have it on Sunday predominantly. Though to your point, there's other churches that meet on off days. I know we um, are good friends with uh, a missionary in Dubai, and uh, their church gathering has to be on a Friday night because of the restrictions on their being able to gather on a Sunday there in Dubai. They're, they're not, they can't meet on a Sunday, and so they meet on a Friday night. So, yeah, I think there there are reasons, there are situations, there are circumstances that that uh, call for other times of of gathering, but. The reason why predominantly you'll see most churches gather on Sunday mornings is following in the footsteps of the tradition that began with the early church marking the resurrection of Christ. So there's nothing necessarily wrong with doing a different day of the week. No. It's a matter of tradition, but right. holding to a tradition isn't necessarily a bad thing either, right? Right. Now that can go too far, right? Like when we talk about the Catholic church has placed tradition as part of the three-legged stool that they uh, look to for authority on par with scripture and human reason. And so if tradition begins to cloud scripture, or if we're at a crossroads between something that we have traditionally done in a biblical principle, the biblical principle needs to always win um, over tradition in that sense. But there's good traditions that we do. We we practice traditions as a church. A lot of what we do, we have a liturgy, even though we're not a, a traditionally liturgical church, like an Episcopalian church or a Catholic church or a you know Presbyterian church. We, even as a non-denominational church, have a, a liturgy that's rooted in tradition, that we gather, we sing songs, we have scripture reading, we pray, we preach, we give. We, all of that is part of tradition um, for what it looks like to, to do church the way that our tradition does church. Define liturgy. Liturgy, uh, order of worship service. So um, the, there can be formal liturgical services. Like if you've ever been to a, a Episcopalian or a Catholic church and you go in and there's a lot of, okay, we stand for this, we sit for this. And yeah, yeah. there's robes and there's there's pomp and circumstance and there's there's, there's altars and, and silver dishes to serve everything. Like that's part of the formality of the liturgy that they have. Or they're reading out of the, the book of prayer or they're reading out of, you know, creeds and confessions. Then there are more casually liturgical churches, which I think 
every other church would fall into. And we have our own order of service, which is our liturgy. It's just not a, a formal order of service the way you would find in some other churches. Yeah, I remember going to a Catholic church for the first time years ago and just being really... It, it seems like everybody knows the plays yeah. and you're just trying to catch up. Like, oh, we're standing now. Oh, yeah. we're supposed to be kneeling at this point. It's such a weird experience. I mean, I, I grew up in Protestant churches, so I've never had that experience until I had a friend took me along with her and, and it was a... It was interesting. Yeah. I was grateful I was not part of that. It was the longest hour of my life. Yep. I, I have to tell you, man, I, I never wanted to go back after that. Man, that's good. If you ever come to me and be like, Pastor PJ, that sermon was the longest hour of my life, I will know that I have failed miserably. <laughs> quit before they quit. That's what yeah. I've always heard. <laughs> yeah. I, I grew up in the Episcopalian church early on, and uh, the, we had kneelers on the pews. That yeah. Would, yeah, yeah. There were these benches that you would pull down in front of you. and Now, during, were they padded? or? Yeah, ours were padded. Okay. See, that's yeah. nice of them to think about you that way. Yeah. Yeah. So... Part of the service was you got down and you prayed on your knees yeah. during the service. I, you know what? Honestly, I don't mind that. I kind of like the idea of everyone kneeling together. I know it's there's physical limitations and whatnot, but I kind of don't mind that. I think right. that's kind of a cool gesture. Right. Yeah. Liturgy is not a, all a bad thing, and I don't mean to imply that it is. Um, but uh, And some of the creeds are great. You look at the, the language of the creeds and you think, man, these are Can you take super soft. Me it's a different creed. That's a, that's a Texas Rangers World Series <laughs> winning creed is what that is. Yeah. Only because they played Creed. That's the only reason they Probably. won. Probably. From, from now forward, they're only going to play Creed at yeah. their games to make sure they win again. Yep. That's it. That's it. Well, hey, let's jump in. We are starting a brand new book and uh, quite a beefy book at that. Yes. That's a good word. Yeah. Beef. Where's the beef? Where's the beef? Where's the beef? Here it is. It's in yeah. Ezekiel. It's in Ezekiel. <laughs> it's been hiding there all along. Now, Ezekiel is a, uh, a, a, a it's, it's. A, there's a lot. He's a major <laughs> prophet. He's Let's major, start there. Yeah. Th- thank you. He's a major <laughs> prophet. I was like, where do we begin? Uh, yeah, he's a, he's a major prophet. And again, the reason he's major is because he's a, a long, lengthy book. And that's what we're we're mostly referring to there. 48, um, 48 chapters, if I'm not mistaken. Right? Yep. 48 chapters long. Which we've done, Jeremiah and Isaiah, both are longer than that. So yeah. we should be able to handle they it. They should be easier. Yeah, easier. Four chapters easier than five chapters easier than some of them. Give or take. Yeah. Uh, he was a contemporary with Jeremiah, the prophet, and also with Daniel. Um, and uh, I believe he was younger than Jeremiah, but older than Daniel. So he's kind of sandwiched between there as far as his age. He served in, in dual roles as both prophet and priest, uh, taken captive during the siege of 597. Uh, that deportation is, is when he was taken captive along with his wife. We find out in the book of Ezekiel that Ezekiel was married. Chapter 24. Yep. Um, but she says very little about. Yeah. Not that, I guess that not to read too much because these are God's words, not his. So I guess that doesn't really say a whole lot. But right. he's like, God, can we devote a section to my wife really quick? And he's like, You got it. Yeah. You got it, buddy. Here, come on, Zeke. <laughs> Slip Song of Solomon into the Book of Ezekiel. <laughs> uh, no, some of the themes though in the book, uh, the glory of God is emphasized. We'll see that right off the bat. The holiness of God is emphasized, and the, the sovereignty of God is emphasized in this book. And so, um, there's a lot to do with it. It's dealing with the uh, the judgment as we've been dealing with in, in Isaiah and Jeremiah and now Ezekiel. And, it, and and that's hard. I was talking to somebody today who was just mentioning, you know, these are hard books. This is a lot. This is weighty stuff. And, and it really is. It is hard to read about God's judgment from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel now. Um, and it's going to continue here. And yet I think there's, there's helpful elements for us as well. We can be warned by it and we can also look forward to the day when all of this is done and, and we don't, there, there is no more judgment because um, we'll be with Christ in eternity. So well, I, one of the things I really appreciate about Ezekiel is the constant refrain. I don't know how many times it is in the scripture. I'll have to look and find out, but he says, 
from God's lips that they may know that I am the Lord. Yep. That comes out over and over and over again. It's like Nine, God's desiring to yeah. be known. He wants them to know. And sometimes he wants them to know through his judgment if they won't know through his uh, through his grace and his mercy. Right, right. Yeah, I was going to say 93 times. That's not it. Son of man repeated 93 times. Son but of man. you're right. That's the other phrase that's repeated too is that they may know that he's the Lord. Yeah. 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 Well, let's get into it. Let's yeah. do it, man. Yeah. I, I, I love Ezekiel because he's a challenging book and he produces great bread. Yeah, we'll get to the bread. That's an interesting one, huh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they don't the, uh, the the Ezekiel bread people don't uh, abide by this recipe. I really That's hope not, for sure. Yeah, I, I hope not. Yeah, because yeah. I do like it. <laughs> I don't want it to be made the way it was originally intended, though. Right, or the second way either. Right. right. Yeah. No. Either way, we don't need any poop involved in our bread baking. I prefer none. Uh, hey, Ezekiel one opens up with the thirtieth year, and so there's been debate over what does that mean. Uh, it's likely this was his age that he's referring to here, it, not the the year of a particular reign or anything else like that. But he's the the priest began their ministry at age thirty, and so it's it's likely that this is a reference to that. Um, he's beginning his service here as the book opens in about five ninety three BC. Uh, and right off the bat, he gets this vision, this vision of a stormy wind coming out of the north. And, and that's a significant phrase. Out of the north, you may remember from the book of Jeremiah, uh, in particular, had a reference to the judgment of God. The, the Babylonians came from the north. The Medes and the Persians would come from the north against Babylon uh, in the future. And here, the Lord is the one that's coming from the north. And so it's a depiction of God's judgment. And this is a depiction of his glory as it comes. And it's this crazy vision uh, that he sees here. Um, and uh, we were talking right before we hit roll on this, but one of the things that you were saying, Pastor Rod, is, is don't don't pretend like God's predictable. Or wh- how did you put it? You, you put it some way like that, that God doesn't do surprising things. And, and I think this is one example of where we're left kind of going, what? Yeah. Okay, God. Yeah, I don't know how I said it either, but that, that's uh, that's that's the sentiment. God, God's surprising. And I, I, I appreciate that because it tells me I, I'm not crafting God in my image. I'm really letting Scripture do the speaking right. here. If, if God always operates in categories that we understand, it, it's probably likely that we're creating some kind of idol. Yeah. Well, let's go through it somewhat quickly. This vision, he, there's, there's these four angelic creatures, most likely cherubim, because the, the vision seems to show up again in chapter 10. And there they're called cherubim. So they're not called cherubim here, but it seems like that's what they are. Um, and these uh, four creatures have four faces each. And th- the implication there may be that they are able to look in any direction, that they're able to see what's going on no matter what. There's a unique movement of this whole uh, chariot that he sees here where it, it doesn't turn, but it can move in any direction it wants to move in, in almost like a straight line adjustment wherever it needs to go. Um, these four faces being able to see in, in any direction, they, they have human hands under their wings, which may imply their ability to carry out the work of God, the service of God that God calls them to. They've got these four faces being one of a man, one of a lion, one of an ox, and one of an eagle. And, and you'll go back and forth on people that will make mention of what those each mean. And uh, yet I, I found quite a few commentators saying, I think we need to be careful about how far we press that, but we can certainly say these are majestic animals, if nothing else. They're powerful animals, uh, and they are the, the animals that are represented on the faces of these angels that are in, in closest proximity to the glory of God, which is what we see here um, as the, this vision unfolds, there's these wheels within wheels. And so people are, are speculating on that. Is this some gyroscopic wheel that moves in any direction it wants to? And the wheels are covered in eyes. Are these gemstones? Does this refer to God's omniscience? And then above this, <laughs> yes, is, yes. Right. Right. <laughs> and then above this chariot is this expanse or, or think platform. And then there's a throne on that. And then there's this figure on the throne and this overwhelming sound associated with all of this. And this figure on the throne has human appearance, 
and uh, his his glory it, it's the likeness of the glory of the lord and so you got this picture right and it's like okay how do you draw this like where do you even begin to try to come up with people a have tried yeah i'm sure and i, I convincingly so i might add some of them are like, oh, okay I, I see that did you ask dolly three to come up with a, a graphic i did not but I, I might now that you brought it up it'd be interesting it'd be i'd be curious to see it but I think one thing I do want to call your attention to is because Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord inhabited in physical form, this must be a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus here that he sees sitting on the throne. Because God, as we're going to find out in John chapter 4 uh, next week, I believe, um, when we come back to, to the book of John, we will find out that Jesus plainly says God is spirit. The Father is spirit. And then, of course, we know that the spirit is spirit. So the only one that has a material body that we find in scripture is the son, is Jesus, the second member of the Trinity. And so this, like Isaiah 6, seems to be a pre-incarnate vision of Christ that the prophet sees as he's describing a physical body that is has physical components sitting on this throne, but it is the glory of God that he beholds. So let's orient ourselves to where we are in history. Remember, 586 is the time where Jerusalem's going to be fully taken. They're going to have their temple destroyed. The whole place is going to be set ablaze. That's going to be the end. 597 um, is when Ezekiel's taken, and this vision is, what, approximately 593? Uh, so a few years into the the exile, at least the, the second wave of the exile. And so Ezekiel now is in Babylon. That's where he is. That's where he's seeing the vision of God's glory, which is interesting in and of itself, isn't it? Yeah. Because it's not Jerusalem. He's right. in Babylon. And I think that's fascinating because why is God's glory in Babylon and not in Jerusalem? We're going to find out very soon why he's not there, but instead over the uh, the Kibar, uh, Kibar Canal in, uh, in Babylon. So just remember where you are, remember where he is, and remember what stage and time in history we are. God's going to give warnings through Ezekiel to let them know, hey, this is not the end. Uh, there's, there's another judgment to come um, unless you repent, and I guess... <laughs> surprise they don't so because they don't repent the judgment does in fact come but that's that's where we are in history right now he's he's preparing um he's 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 in babylon he's preparing to receive visions from god to convey to the people about god's imminent judgment 586 we haven't gotten there yet so that's the time frame we're looking at yeah and so much of what you were just talking about is is the content of chapters two and three as well it's ezekiel's calling and commissioning in those two chapters and He's called Son of Man. This is the title that, that God uses for the prophet here 93 times in the book. It's it's the title that uh, is also applied to Christ in the New Testament, though I, d- I don't know that there's too much of a connection to be made there explicitly other than uh, the, the note that this is what the God calls uh, Ezekiel more than anything else. In fact, I don't think he refers to Ezekiel by name in the book. I think it's always Son of Man when he addresses the prophet. Uh, you'll notice in verse 2 of chapter 2, the Spirit of the Lord enters into him. This is a reminder that this is a different dispensation. Um, and so Ezekiel had the Spirit of the Lord enter into him when the Lord was equipping him to proclaim a message that he had prepared for him. When the Lord wanted him to do ministry on his behalf, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Ezekiel or entered into Ezekiel. Versus for us as New Testament believers, we believe that the Spirit indwells us permanently from the moment of our salvation. So this Romans is a, eight. a different, yeah, a different situation here. Um, chapter three is interesting because Ezekiel is commissioned to eat a scroll, to eat a book. Um, yeah, and, yeah. and the, the scroll contains the words of the Lord. And so initially 
the scroll is sweet here and, and think Psalm 19, right? The, the word of the Lord is sweeter than honey. And so there's a sweetness to it that the prophet finds. And I think that's because it's the, the words of God. But then uh, later on, this, the, the bitterness of it becomes evident to the prophet as well when he realizes, man, this is a message of judgment and I'm going to go to a people. And he said, the Lord did in verse seven, the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you. So again, that's a common theme in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. God has a message for the people and the people aren't going to listen. But uh, one thing of note is the end of chapter three, and I've always been drawn to this. Uh, This is our job as pastors is what we find Ezekiel commissioned to at the end of chapter three as well. And that is God uses the, the picture of a watchman on a tower. And basically he tells Ezekiel, if the watchman warns the people of the, the, the dangers and calls them out for their, their sin and the impending doom, then if they ignore the watchman, their blood is on them themselves, on their own heads. But if the watchman fails to deliver the message of urgency that, that judgment is coming and they're in danger and doesn't call for them to take action, well, then the blood is not only on the heads of the people, but also on the heads of the watchman. The watchman is not being a faithful watchman. And now we're not commissioned prophets of God in the same sense as Ezekiel was, but we have the same job, church, for us to, to preach the word of God in its entirety. We, we're not here to preach messages that just tickle the ears and, and fill the seats. We love you guys and we love the people. And, and because we love everyone, we, we want the message to go out clearly that, hey, the, the hope for this world is found in, in Christ and Christ alone. And so we find uh, some of our obligation as pastors, I think, here in the end of chapter three. And if I were going to deliver this to you all who are not pastors, probably most of you listening. Um, I would say one thing that's instructive for you is Ezekiel's intake of the word in order for him to deliver the word. Mm. He had to personally feast on it himself in order to deliver it to others. And that that doesn't change whether you're a pastor, a parishioner, a parent, or anything else in between. If you want to be faithful to deliver the word of God to others, suffice it to say, you have to know it. You have to be willing to engage with it in, in a deep and significant way. So even though you're not the same kind of watchman Pastor PJ is or Ezekiel, uh, you're a watchman of sorts. And I would take that real seriously by knowing the word of God. Amen. Yes, agree. Rubber stamp a million times over. Well, let's go over to Hebrews chapter nine from one uh, heavy book to another heavy book. Easy. Easy, easy. Uh, chapter nine begins with a reminder that the the uh, Old Testament temple uh, or the, the the temple even still standing at the day. And, and here's another example. I think, Pastor Rod, last episode, you mentioned that we believe that this was written pre-70 AD because the temple would have been destroyed um, after 70 AD. And so here you have the, the author referencing the temple as though it's still in operation uh, at his time. And so I think here's evidence that this is an earlier date for the writing of Hebrews than 70 AD. Um, because he's referencing that and he says, this is a shadow that all of these things that you're so used to. And remember writing to a group tempted to go back to this system. He's saying, this is a shadow of the true substance. The true substance is the, the, the better sacrifice. The better priest is Christ. And this is, these are repeated themes that we've already seen in the book of Hebrews, but being developed in a little bit more detail now here in, in chapter nine. And we read in verse 12 that unlike the high priest who had to enter with, with, uh, blood for himself and for the sins of the people, we read in verse 12, he entered, Jesus did once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of go- goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So here you have a call back to the day of atonement where the priest would bring in the blood of the goat, the sacrificial goat and the cal- calf. Why can I not say calf? Calf. Calf. I like that better anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and he would use the, the blood of these animals uh, in a representative way of, of life being given for the penalty of sin. But, but here the writer of Hebrews is saying Jesus is better because he's offering his own blood. And his blood, unlike the blood of bulls and goats, is able to redeem us from our, our sin and able to save us and deliver us forevermore. 
So you might be wondering then, what's the deal with 70 AD? Why, why would that even matter? And I think one of the challenges with this book is that it's a highly defined Christology. Uh, this is this is it's beautiful work. It's some of the hardest and most eloquent Greek in the New Testament, if not the most. And so some scholars will look at this and say, this has got to be later than 70 AD. Right. This has to be. This is just too good. It's too, it's too, it's too exalted. It, it just feels too refined to be less than a 30-year time frame or approximately 30-year time frame. Uh, between the death of Christ and and the writing of Hebrews, uh, but I think that it, there's the, the, for good reason internally to say this this is in fact that, and even though this is excellent Christology, um, it's su- sufficient to say that the early church really understood. I mean, this is good. <laughs> we understand, and, and even now that we have theology textbooks that we can use to reference this and really build upon it, this kind of stuff is evident. I think that the church got it. Um, did they have a perfect understanding early on? No, but the church did get it. And the fact that this is before 70 AD gives us evidence to the to suggest that the church understood Jesus as both the Son of God and the Son of Man, who was the sin bearer for the world. And they had that understanding pretty early on. This is not a later development that the church came to a conclusion and said, hey, let's get together, let's talk about this. Is he God or not? Let's make him God. Boom. No, right. Hebrews suggests otherwise. Right. In this, as you're talking about that, I was reminded of all the time and the conversations that the disciples had with Jesus during his three years of earthly ministry that we don't have recorded. Yeah. Um, and we have everything necessary for life and godliness, right? We've got sufficiency of scripture, 100%. But I think some of their developed Christology probably came from conversations that were had offline, so to speak, yeah. where there were questions asked. Peter was asking Jesus about different things. John, especially the, the 40 days post-resurrection, um, when when the, it began to dawn on them, like who he was and in, in the significance of all this. I mean, they, they probably learned a lot in, in that brief amount of time. Um, where they uh, then were able to de- to impart that to others and and uh, and continue to develop these things as they they moved on. Amen. W- one note, uh, just the end of, of chapter nine there. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Church, this is our great hope, right? And that's that's part of what we're doing. We to bookend this this episode. We gather on Sundays to remember the resurrection and also anticipate our future resurrection to anticipate the the return of Christ. He rose from the dead. He came out of the grave on Sunday, and, and that causes us to look forward to his return. And he says here that he's not going to return to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So. We pray, church, that you are eagerly waiting for the return of Christ, and we want to see many, many other people come to faith in Christ so that they also will be eagerly waiting for him and not found uh, shrinking back from him, as the writer will say in the next chapter. Let's get to work. Let's do it. Well, hey, we'll catch you guys again tomorrow, and uh, happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. See y'all. Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. We hope and pray this has been a blessing to you and your time in the Word. If it has, if you would subscribe to this podcast, leave a like, leave a comment, and share it with some friends and family, that would be awesome. If you need more information about Compass Bible Church here in North Texas, you can go to compassntx.org. Again, that's compassntx.org. And we'll be back with you tomorrow for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Thank you.